you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. As you think about the problems in your life, how many of them would you have if evil didn't exist in this world? A person could not do anything evil against you, abuse you, hurt you. Satan could not deceive you and do any evil against you. Your wicked heart could not produce sinful issues of your mind, will, and emotions. You would not attempt to do evil things that would only produce more problems in your life. So it may sound obvious, but the presence of evil in our world is the root cause of our problems. This is important to hold on to since evil is a reality and will be until Jesus returns. Christians who know that evil exists and why it exists should be able to respond to their own problems and the problems of others in a biblical way. We should not be shocked. We should not be disheartened. We should be realistic and ready to solve the problem. And a big step in dealing with any of our mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational problems is to understand the biblical solution to the problem of evil. Now, last time we ended with a brief look at the unbiblical solutions. So now let's dig down deep into the biblical one. To do that, we need to first produce a proper theodicy. Now, that's not a word we use every day, is it? A theodicy is a defense of God. More specifically, it is a defense of the justice and holiness of God in his establishment of a world where evil exists. To be clear, God doesn't need a defense, certainly not from sinful human beings. We also don't need to be defensive with other people about why God does what he does. Unfortunately, we often are. Making a biblical theodicy is another form of Christian apologetics, where we give a reason for our faith. We need this theodicy for ourselves as well as to be able to help others. It is clear that we live in a time where most people seem to either reject or misunderstand the place of God in the problem of evil. Ask yourself, how often did you hear the name of God invoked during this pandemic? outside of your church or your Christian circles. We have talked a lot about science and how it's going to solve this problem. We have heard about how awful it was for China to unleash this virus on us. We have heard a lot of blame thrown around for our politicians mishandling this pandemic. We have certainly heard way too much about how to be social distanced and safe during this time. But where is God in this pandemic? Well, that's just one reason why we must always be ready to think about and talk about God and his place with the evil in this world. Unfortunately, we are rarely ready. So let's start with the biblical revelation about God when it comes to suffering. We must presuppose all of these facts from the Bible instead of just our own opinions of who God is. So let's dive in. First, God is sovereign. This means that God is in absolute control of his creation. 
Psalm 115, 2 through 3 says, Why should the Gentiles say, So where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Then there's Ephesians 1, 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Acts 17, 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, do we really believe God is sovereign when we are suffering? Or do we just give it lip service? God's total control over all his creation is a biblical fact. It is core to our defense of God. Suffering always brings out our true theology and our real beliefs, that's for sure. Second, God is holy. This means that God is transcendent. He lives beyond time and space. He is a mystery. He cannot be explained fully. God's holiness is the sum of his divine perfections. Listen to Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And then there's these familiar verses from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God is sovereign and he is holy. But third, we must add this truth. God is personal. This means that God is an individual being. He is self-conscious. He has a name. He chooses. He speaks. He acts. He is not just the distant creator of the deist, and he is certainly not some pantheistic substance. Exodus 3.14 says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then there's this picture from Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's the foundation of our theodicy. A proper theology of suffering must show a God who is A, sovereign, B, holy, good and just, and C, personal. We'll also add there, loving. Consider how letting go of any of these concepts destroys the true understanding of God. God is sovereign. God is holy. God is personal. Now, what do most people let go of during suffering? 
even Christians. I think it's his sovereignty. It's sort of easier to hold on to the holiness of God for sure and even the personal love of God, but resist the belief that he's in control of all things, especially our suffering. Well, from there, let's move to the biblical revelation about man. To properly understand the evil of suffering, we must also understand the human being biblically. So here we go. First, man was created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, who is God talking to? Well, God is talking within the Godhead. And God chooses to make man in his likeness, the likeness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Being made in the image of God means that man is a living being, intelligent, capable of choosing, believing, etc. It also means we share the communicable attributes of God like love, holiness, grace, mercy, joy, etc. Now we need to take a minute to contrast this with Rabbi Kushner's view, who we've quoted many times so far in this podcast. And remember, Rabbi Kushner's view is simply representative of the world's view in general. Here's what he says about this text in Genesis 1. He says that having created the animals and beasts, God says to them, the animals, let us, you and I, arrange for a new kind of creature to emerge, a human being, in our image, yours and mine. Let us fashion a creature who will be like you, an animal in some ways, needing to eat, to sleep, to mare, and will be like me in other ways, rising above the animal level. And so as the crown of creation, human beings are created part animal, part divine. Now this might sound outrageous, but think about it. It's the prevailing view today because of the teaching of evolution. According to the evolutionists, we're just higher animals, maybe not even higher animals. We're just animals. At least Kushner puts us a bit higher than animal life form. We're part animal and part God. This is what he says, let us make man in our image means that we are part animal and part God. Well, it's just not true, Rabbi Kushner. We are made in the image of God, not in the image of animals. Second, man is a morally responsible creature. Back to Genesis again in chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then there's this verse from Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now that's the familiar story of the original sin. But what it demonstrates among many, many other things is that man can choose. 
and that man is held fully responsible and accountable for his choices. Third, then, man in his natural state is fallen. We just read that in Genesis 3, 6, but it's confirmed to us many times in the New Testament. Listen to Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. We are all sinners because we have been born in sin. But now let's go back again to Rabbi Kushner's view and his view of the story. Quote, the Garden of Eden story is one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. What happened to Adam and Eve is not that they became sinners, but they became human. Their punishment is that they would have to spend their lives making choices. This is what it means to be human in the image of God. It means being free to make choices instead of doing whatever our instincts would tell us to do. No other creature except man is free to choose. God will no longer intervene to keep us from doing things. All he will do is tell us certain things are wrong, warn us that we'll be sorry for having done them, and hope that, if we don't take his word for it, we'll at least learn from experience. So this is how Kushner and the world in general, again, hold on to this false belief that man is good. We're not sinners. We're just human. We're just free to choose good or evil, and God will not stop us. They believe that this is the essence of being human. Now, again, you must know that this is the predominant view so that you can dispute it with the truth. So we have gone over our first two elements of a proper theodicy, a biblical view of God as sovereign, holy, and personal, and a biblical view of man as made in the image of God, as sinful, and as morally responsible. But now we need to add the third element, the biblical revelation about the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility or his freedom. The Bible presents these two truths as being consistent, not contradictory. You need to hear that again. The Bible presents these two truths as being consistent, not contradictory. It may not make emotional sense to you at times, but it is biblical. Here's just three examples that can help you see how these two are connected. In Acts 4, verse 27 through 30, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, here's the key verse, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. But then they were held personally responsible for the death of Jesus, even though it was according to God's determined plan. And then there's Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, where Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. See, you have your personal responsibility, work out your own salvation, and we have God's sovereignty, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
And then we have 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, where again, Paul writes, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So God sent the strong delusion, his sovereignty, but people are accountable and responsible for believing the lie and not believing the truth. Over and over again, we find references in both the Old Testament and New Testament of God holding people morally responsible for doing what he has sovereignly ordained them to do. So this means that there's an order for how these two fit together. God is sovereign and man is morally responsible. So where do many people go wrong in this understanding? The following flow of assumptions may help. Assumption one, man is responsible for his behavior. Assumption two, this responsibility implies true freedom from God's control. Assumption three, this freedom contradicts absolute authority. Assumption four, therefore, human responsibility contradicts God's absolute control. Now, do you hear it? Assumption two is where people go wrong, making assumption four faulty. According to Scripture, man's free will does not mean freedom from God's absolute control. Man is never free from God's control, yet he is free to choose. So assumption two, this responsibility implies true freedom from God's control, is not true. But this connection also means that God stands behind good in a way that he does not stand behind evil. In other words, good is chargeable to God but evil is not. Finally, we must also hold on to the truth that man's choices are never greater than God's sovereignty. Here's a quote from Jerry Bridges. The scriptures teach that God does move a person's will, but in such a way that the person acts freely and responsibly. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility remains a mystery, but there's one thing we do know. They are not inconsistent, which leads us to the fourth and final element of our theodicy, our defense of God in the problem of the evil of suffering. Here it is, the biblical revelation of God's relationship to evil in this world. How does the Bible present this relationship? After we determine this, then the only question is if we're going to accept the authority of Scripture or our own experiences, opinions, and emotions. So there are many aspects to the biblical revelation of God's relationship to evil in this world. First, God has decreed that evil would be part of his plan. In other words, evil is no surprise to God. Ephesians 1 verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will all things. Then there's Romans 8:28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, all things work together according to his purpose. And then these words of Joseph to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph knew that God works good from evil, 
There's no surprise to him. Now, this does not mean that God is the author or cause of sin. We'll talk about that in another episode. But it does mean he has determined that man's free and morally responsible actions would be a means of accomplishing his purposes. Second, God has determined that evil would be used to bring glory to himself. If we had time, we would read the entire Romans 9 passage. In this classic passage on predestination, using the illustration of the twins Jacob and Esau, as well as Pharaoh, it's a classic passage on how it's all about God bringing glory to himself. Here are the key verses, verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Then there's this third truth. God permits evil in order to accomplish his purposes. God permits evil to exist in his creation and for man to make evil choices. This has been true ever since the Garden of Eden. God allows evil in his world and it will ultimately accomplish his plan. And then fourth, God prevents evil on many occasions and restrains it. When thinking about all the evil and suffering in this world, people rarely consider how God uses people and situations to keep lots of evil from occurring. This world is fallen and full of evil, but it is not as evil as it could be. So here are a couple ways that God does it. Romans 13, 1 through 5. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience's sake. Now, in our present climate, you might think the authorities aren't doing a very good job on restraining evil, but they have been appointed by God to do so. Then there's 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then fifth, God directs and controls evil to accomplish his purposes. In other words, God doesn't just allow evil, he's in total control of his world. Here's a great quote. The world and all that is in it is constantly under the watchful eye and rule of God, who controls all things in such a way as to bring about his own eternal purposes and plan without failure. Theologians refer to this work of God as his providence. Now, this is evident, isn't it, in the lives of his people. The story of Joseph, which we'll study in depth later on, is one such place. This is also evident in the rise and fall of nations. Isaiah 14 
uh, talks about how he is in control and his purpose shall stand in all the nations. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. But this is also evident in God's use of natural evil, nature when harmful, sickness, disease, tornado, flood, virus. There are biblical stories of God striking down people with sickness, even death. Also of God bringing death and destruction through natural circumstances. But this is also evident in his control over Satan, who is an agent of moral and natural evil. God always directs behind the scenes. We'll study the story of Job in depth next time. And then there's Paul's thorn in the flesh from 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. That he said that that thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan used by God to buffet him so that God would be given glory and that he would enjoy grace. And then finally, and most importantly, God overcomes evil and is never defeated by it. Just think about how important these three facts underneath this last principle is to our theodicy. First, God has entered this fallen world redemptively. 1 John 4, 8 through 10, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God brought about the death of death and evil in the death of Christ. But also then, second, God enables those who come to faith in Christ to overcome evil by bringing forth good in their lives. Hear Romans 8.28 again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then third, God will bring his children home to heaven where there is no evil. Romans 8.18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. God is always the victor over the evil of suffering. As we finish out a biblical understanding of the evil of suffering, it will be helpful to us to present a biblical summary. These are the essential principles we must hold on to when we need to understand the presence of evil in this world. First, the ways of God in this world in regard to evil are defensible. The problem of evil is not unanswerable and should not be avoided by Christians. The Word of God is sufficient in its self-authenticating power and offers the only adequate answer to the question, how can evil exist in a good God's world? Second, God is not the author of sin and evil, nor does he approve of it. Attempts to blame God for the presence of evil fail to reckon with what God has said about the true source of evil, namely the rebellion against God by his creatures. Evil is rooted in a depraved human heart, not in the holiness of God. We'll talk more about that in our next episode. Third, a knowledge of who God is is essential to an unshakable faith in the face of the monster of the evil of suffering. 
A partial or distorted understanding of the character of God is the stuff of which idolatry is made, and idols inevitably disappoint. We're often disappointed with God when we have the wrong view of him, such as when one woman said to me years ago, you don't really think God could send anyone to hell, do you? Fourth summary point, any view of the ways of God which do not allow for mystery should be suspect. It is not within humans to fully understand God or the evil of suffering. Those defenses of why evil exists in a good God's world, which imply that there are no mysteries to be explained, fail to do justice with the deep struggles of people like Habakkuk and Job. Any defense of God's ways must humbly submit itself to the infinitely wise ways of God, leaving the secret things with God. And then finally, unbelief stands in the way of the non-Christian's only satisfactory answer to the problem of evil. The issue is one of an independent spirit, the refusal to submit to God. This is all of our root sins back to Adam and Eve. If there's to be any hope in the struggle with the reality of evil, it'll be found in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. For any discussion about good and evil is an attempt to deal with spiritual realities. So we must struggle and deal with these matters. Let me end today with a quote from Pastor Jack Lash. One of the reasons that these things sound very strange to most of us is that we are used to viewing the world as man-centered rather than God-centered. If man's welfare is of ultimate value, then these things sound strange, almost to the point of being malicious. But the world is not man-centered. It is God-centered. His glory is its ultimate purpose. His pleasure is its ultimate goal. Therefore, we must stop evaluating things on the basis of how they affect man and start evaluating them as how they contribute to God's self-glorification. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.